Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of the Mild Mannered Army podcast. Of course, this should also be the last ever episode of the Mild Mannered Army podcast. Only time, and possibly you, will tell. On today's show, I'm joined by lead singer Elka Harold. When Morrissey played Battersea Power Station in December 1997, two very noteworthy events took place. The first of these occurred when, during the encore of Shoplifters of the World Unite, I was able to clamber up on stage and embrace the Pope of Mope in the hope, as Will Self described such moments, that a touch from him would cure the scrofular loneliness. It did not. Tragically, video footage of this moment is available to view on YouTube. Perhaps more tragically, there is no video footage of the second moment of note that took place that night. The appearance of Elka. Elka had arrived on the scene in 1995, with two singles released on their own label, Leather Lips and Boho Bird. These were not the tentative, nervous fumblings of pop virgins, but were, instead, records that oozed glamour, swagger, confidence and identity. They sounded like a band who knew exactly who they were and how good they were. Lead singer, the fabulously monikered Harold, was the sort of frontman that you would get if you decided to create one in some sort of Frankenstein-style experiment. Handsome, charismatic, charming, equal parts Bowie, Ferry and Morrissey. He was accompanied by a gang of gentlemen with more musical talent than the likes of menswear could even imagine existing. They were a band who existed at the same time as Britpop, but who seemed separate from it. But not because they loudly proclaimed that fact, unlike certain other bands, but simply because it was obvious. Elka had little, if anything, in common with the other bands of that period. They had a little too much of the other, a dangerous hint of sex and glamour, and they didn't sing in a Mockney accent. Perhaps only their Melody Maker-sponsored Maker Shaker tour mate Strangelove had anything in common with them. I stumbled across Elka because of that Melody Maker tour. It was preceded by a free cassette that came with the November 4th, 1995 edition of the paper. I know that because I still have both the tape and the paper. The song on the tape was Roast Beef, and it was further proof of quite how, well, peculiar Elka were. Rubbernecking is, to these ears, the great lost album of the Britpop era. At a time when things were slowly beginning to become a little bloated, thanks to the huge amounts of cocaine being snorted by bands, producers and listeners alike, Rubbernecking is grand, operatic, anthemic and just plain big, without ever sounding overblown or pompous. It also manages to be, at times, a remarkably delicate and intimate record. That's quite the trick to be able to pull off. No doubt it was all of these facts that drew the attention of Morrissey, who invited Elka to support him on his European and North American tour of 1997. Being asked to support Morrissey has sunk more bands than can be found on the shelves of your local record store. Frank, Gallon Drunk, The Well-Oiled Sisters, Doll and the Kicks and countless others have all said yes and then found themselves floundering in the sea of indifference that is a Morrissey audience. I once saw the much-lauded Marion support Morrissey, and the constant chance of Morrissey so irked lead singer Jamie Harding that he had a near breakdown on stage and started haranguing the audience with a series of very rich expletives. The notion of playing in front of huge crowds and raising your profile has to be weighted against months of nobody giving a hoot about who you are or what you have to offer. No such fate awaited Elka. They were a band who were destined to melt hearts and bend minds. They swiftly set about winning over the tens of thousands who arrived to hear Manchester's Master of Misery in venues like the Greek in LA or Battersea Power Station in London. By the end of the tour, it was not unreasonable to suggest that Elka had succeeded where so many others had failed. They were more than just a warm-up act. They were a gift. The stage was now set for the inevitable world domination. A second album would surely be exactly that. A second. A precursor to a third, then a fourth, and on and on it would go. A new set of songs had been written on tour, and they were ready to be recorded. Then it happened. Dropped. Universal had bought Island and didn't fancy Elka. Management had decided to push some other act. The pursuit of excellence had irked the powers that be. Take your pick. All that really matters is that the story was over. It hadn't even really begun. A whimper. A whisper. A sigh. A sense of loss. In the band, for sure, but also in the bedrooms of the few, the happy few, who had seen and heard something worth paying attention to, something worth investing in, something worth loving. Gone. Over. In the years since, the members of the band had moved on, 
families, jobs, friends and the other miscellany that makes up what we amusingly call a life. It seemed like those short months were confined, condemned, to the memory banks of everyone involved. Something to look back on fondly. Nostalgia. Then a different kind of whisper. A new website. Demo versions of the second album, softly, softly. Rumours of someone looking to actually record and release the album. Online chatter from people who remembered. Now, nearly 20 years later, it looks like something nobody thought could happen might happen. Certainly there is an interest in the band themselves. They are fortunate in that their relationships have stood the test of time and so there would be no need for months of therapy and apologies. Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps 2018 might see the return of a band who very definitely have unfinished business. A few live dates and the chance to hear those songs again would be a delight. A physical release for Softly Softly would be a treat. But what I really want is that third album that right now is nestled in the hearts and heads of Elka. It's a funny time, isn't it? This, um, this unstoppable nostalgia bus where it's just everybody's crawling out of the woodwork and seemingly filling arenas left, right and centre. It's extraordinary. Well, I, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I, one of the things that didn't go in the interview that I did with, with Mark Morris was I asked him about exactly that. I said, oh, you know, what about uh, a new Blue Tones record? Wouldn't that be good? You know, there seems to be a lot of interest in the whole kind of, you know, mid-90s thing. And he said, well, the, the thing to remember is that these things either happen for slightly less noble reasons, you know, people maybe want to make a buck. Not that there's anything particularly wrong with that, you know, if people have talent, why shouldn't they make money out of it? Absolutely not, yeah. But he also said that there are other bands for whom it's just the right time. And he, he specifically pointed to Shed 7. He said, you know, yes. they, they, there's a band who have been touring and doing bits and pieces for sort of 17 years. They've never had any interest in doing anything new. And then it just happened and they've had enormous success. So he, he feels quite comfortable with that. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly don't have a problem with it. Um, you know, like, say, good luck. I'm, I don't really know the story of Shed 7, whether they actually ever went away or whether they kind of downed tools for a period and tried something else. But, you know, often with bands, you know, you start, you're very young and that's what you do, you know, and you do that for a lot of those groups, ourselves included, in way into your sort of 20s, your late 20s. And then, you know, it's it's sort of what you do, really. So if you can if you can find a way to get back and, you know, to pay your bills by doing the thing that you love, then why not? Good luck to them, I say. I, I think I've, I've been to see a couple of these, these bands now. You know, Echo Belly I saw recently, <laughs> and I went to see Shed 7. And I have to say that there was a, an enormous feeling of joy in the room. People yeah. people really wanted to be there, and people were enjoying it. And it, 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 interestingly, it didn't have the air of nostalgia, you know. But, but interestingly, both of those bands had new records out. And right. I, I, I think that is something a bit different to David Van Day trudging out the latest version of Dollar. Well, that's true, isn't it? I mean, there's, there is very much that kind of strictly nostalgia tour where, you know, a generation beyond, you know, are just playing a selection of hits and, and kind of rehashing them. But, you know, when you saw Shed 7, for example, did it seem that a lot of the audience connected or were familiar with the new material? Was there a, almost like a new fan base in addition to the those that, that loved them first time around. I think so. I, th I, th I think that is accurate, actually, Harry. I think that there were people there. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know. The, the, the new record is. I mean, what do I know about these things? But for me, it's better than the things they did that brought them fame and fortune and sex and drugs and rock and roll the first time around. It's a very, right. it's a very accomplished set of pop songs. You know, so, songs that are kind of slightly joyous and anthemic and people seem to really enjoy those songs as much as they enjoyed the, the older material. So, you know, and it was a very similar thing with Echo Belly, who I think were, were probably much, you know, out of those two bands, they probably had more in common with, with Elka. They were slightly more artistic, slightly more serious, you know, dealing with slightly grander themes, you know, um, and were perhaps slightly more 
outsiderish than than, than mm. Shed Seven were. I, I, but I don't know. Maybe. Well, you know, it, it's music, isn't it? And for my money, it's still the greatest art form. There is just something so utterly visceral and all-consuming about music. And, you know, if you love it, you love listening to it, and actually being there whilst it's happening, surrounded by you know, numerous other people that are having that, that moment, there's nothing really... There's nothing really like it. I mean, you know, I'm not a big sports fan, but the only kind of parallel I've ever found is is being, you know, in the heat of a, a big football match, you know, where there, everybody is there completely connected to that moment and experiencing that very physical reaction to, to what's going on around them. It's the, it's a beautiful thing, isn't it? I, 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 yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. I, I think that the I think the difference between the sporting analogy and, and music is the, the the emotional pull that, uh, particularly for you know a, a band like Elka, at the risk of being sycophantic again, that there seemed to be something very honest and very pure about not only the music but about the voice and the words. And I think when you when you have that, when there is an honesty, when you genuinely feel like the band who are in front of you, you know, to be very trite about it, mean it, man, th- that that is something that is unparalleled. Mm. Well, you know, it's lovely to hear you say that, but I don't know what what can I say. I mean, for us, from day one, it, it was always the real deal. You know, we came together when we were very young. We passionately adored music, playing music, making music, and really there was no, in our journey, there was no sort of cynical attempt really to, you know, be a band and and write music in a certain kind of way because we thought that it might uh, appeal or it might, Mm. you know, achieve a kind of desired success. You know, of course, we wanted to be successful and we wanted as many people as possible to hear our music, but... um, you know, there was never really a template for what we did. We just played and played and played and played until we sort of connected and looked at each other and said, that's the sound that we want to make, or that's the sound that feels right. I suppose to that end, um, it should have it should have felt honest. It should have felt real. I, I certainly hope it did, because it, it did to us, you know. Well, well, I wonder, maybe you could tell me something about those early days then, Harry. I, I'm, I'm interested in, you know, this, this, this gang of, Boys, I'm always interested in things like, you know, those first records or the the first songs that you remember hearing or the first gigs that you went to and those kind of first moments where you thought, you know what, I want to do that. You know, I, just before we get into this point, I feel I've got to say this to you. This is it's something of a strange experience for me because this sort of recent flurry of Elka sort of returning to uh, to my life. <laughs> You know, I mean, obviously, it was a huge part of my life and all of our lives. Um, but, you know, it was a while ago since we last played, you know, 20 <laughs> odd years. And, uh, you know, and a lot's gone on in, the, in, in that time. And in my case, you know, not a lot of music, really. When, when that stopped for me, it, it stopped. And maybe we'll get on to the, the whys and the wherefores. So I'm sort of sitting here now really trying to put put a cap that I haven't worn for many years I <laughs> sort of revisit that time. I'm, I'm really happy to do it. I'm really flattered that, um, you know, someone like yourself, um, you know, wants to talk about it. Um, but it, but it does feel a bit strange. So forgive me if, uh, if uh, you know, I need to, I need to warm up a little bit <laughs> to the groove of things. Talk to me about first records and early influences. And, and I'm particularly interested in, you know, what it was that made you feel, you know what, I, I want to do that. Well, I suppose another nice thing really about talking about it with the benefit of this hindsight is I feel less of an obligation to sort of, you know, please Melody Maker by dropping <laughs> all the right kind of references. So I feel incredibly liberated to be very honest about uh, about influences and, and those early days uh, without the need to, to try and be cool. You know, it, it was what it was. The story really was, I was at school with the drummer in Elka, Darren, and we both went to a theatre school, and we were both training. He was training to be a dancer, actually, and I was to be an actor. And it was it was great. To cut a long story short, we both had really 
pretty horrendous times at uh, school. You know, I'd been kicked out of a couple and uh, a similar journey. And to cut a long story short, we both managed to, independent of each other, but to land a place at this at this school called the Arts Education School. So, so off we went along there, and that was extraordinary. There were, I think, the ratio was something like eight girls to one boy. You know, and we did half a day where we did our academic work, and the rest of the day we pranced around acting or dancing, and, uh, and it was amazing, really happy days. And but that was the sort of that kind of professionalism was drummed into us really from mm. about the age of thirteen. You know what it means to really rehearse, what it means to really you know, take what you're doing seriously, and the stakes and all the rest of it. So I was very much minded that that was going to be my life. I wanted to be an actor, and I was really serious about that. And then at about the age of, I guess, about 14, I kind of came to music. I'd always liked music, but I'd never really been you know, passionately into uh, bands per se. But I guess the first band that I really fell in love with was U2, actually. A girl that I was seeing at the time had an older brother, gave me a copy of Under a Blood Red Sky. And I just, I just fell in love with it, really. Um, I wasn't sort of clued up to the the politic of you two or and at that point I guess as well a lot of the kind of flat that certainly Bono came under didn't exist you know they were quite a, an interesting band who were kind of conquering America in a way that few had done for many years before them and they had a kind of scale to their sound that just intrigued me and, and really grabbed me and literally really that summer I, I just started to to discover bands and, and really my first kind of wave of, uh, of bands was that almost kind of folky tinged sort of pseudo stadium rock I uh -huh. suppose I mean, other bands like the water boys I was quite taken with <laughs> simple minds I think at the time were doing some quite interesting stuff suddenly I thought you know what this is this is amazing this is kind of acting but you get to write your own script Darren at the time you know, he was playing drums. You know, from day one, he was irritatingly brilliant at music. You know, a real virtuoso, <laughs> the kind of guy that, you know, I kid you not, you know, he can turn his hand to pretty much any instrument and tinker with it. And within a month or so, he's, he's pretty decent. So he and I set about forming a band. My cousin, Marcus, um, had played guitar since he was seven years old. And my other best friend at the time, um, Rody, um played fuck all and did fuck all and was at home having been expelled himself <laughs> from school. And I said, do you want to be in a band? And he said, yeah, that sounds cool. Um, I said, well, learn the bass because that's, you know, we need someone to play the bass. <laughs> and uh, that's really how it all started. You know, we were about, as I say, 14, 15. We came together and, and interestingly, I think for, for us, um, we never, ever, did the kind of covers thing. Uh, from day one, when we came together, we, we only ever tried to write, and I emphasised the word tried at that point, um, you know, our own material. And uh, it was predictably dreadful to begin with, and these sort of long, hopelessly pretentious poems about, oh, God knows what. I, I think the first song literally was called Ambition <laughs> that we wrote. Um, but, you know, it kind of clicked and we, we really fell for it. And and that was a turning point. And from that, literally from that sort of moment of, wow, this is music. And I suppose what, what it was really was that all of us, to an extent, didn't really have that relatively longer gestation period of being a fan. You know, it, we'd all sort of came to, to discovering music and specifically bands. I mean, I should add as well that there was also a shared love, you know, talk about the other side of the coin, at that time of Prince. So <laughs> yeah. sort of one foot in this kind of folky, rocky, you know, kind of uh, overblown stuff. And then there's this other foot in kind of funky Prince and, and rare groove. And we sort of threw that all into the mix and, and just, you know, just, just started really. And we didn't play any gigs or do anything for a good two or three years. 
but we practiced obsessively. I mean, any time we could, you know, at least two or three times a week, your parents, you know, garages or a church hall that was sort of, you know, one of the mums gave us access to, you know, wherever we could really, um, pooled our resources, bought the bare minimum of kit. And, uh, and that's kind of how it started for, for the first few years. And then, but then beyond that, obviously, once we started to, to get into that mindset, <clears throat> we really started to you know, discover a much broader range of references. And you know, the Stone Roses and, and the kind of rise of Manchester was yeah. starting to take off. I mean, prior to that, the whole kind of shoegazing scene never really did it for me or, or for anyone. No disrespect to those bands, but just didn't really feel it. And I, I remember very much being a bit sort of indifferent to what was then very much the indie scene. You know, there was the indie charts, I don't know, the wonder stuff and uh, Hot Will Eat Itself, yeah. that, that, that whole scene. So, you know... But the turning point, another second turning point, I suppose, was the Stone Roses and and that album. And, and when that kind of came out, but that upped the ante massively for all of us. And I went to Spike Island and just experienced that that kind of cultural moment, and just thought, this is fucking, this is unbelievable, and I have to do everything in my power to try and try and do something like that. You know, I remember seeing Ian Brown walk out on stage holding an inflatable globe That's and right. just kicking it into the crowd and the crowd literally surging forward 20 feet, you know, mass tramplings occurring and just standing there and thinking, this is, this is a moment, this is culture, this is ours, you know. Um, and that galvanised things. And from then... Well, from then it, it, it we really you know took it quite seriously. A couple of us got a place at university, myself included. Um, I mean, I didn't know, you know by that point there was nothing else on on the horizon. The acting had taken a back seat. I didn't want to get a job. I got to the end of scraping through a few A levels. That's actually where we met the keyboard player Matt at the college that myself and Rody went to, and. Um, we just really learned how to smoke dope really, really well for two years <laughs> and, and uh, listened a lot to The Cure as well. They'd entered the scene by that point, and, um, particularly the album Disintegration, which mm. actually be became very, very important to us in, in terms of when we came to make um, rubbernecking. But I'd like to place a film, a film course at the university and uh, Mark has got somewhere else in London. But the only agenda was don't want to get a job we don't want to break up and kind of move around the country so what can we do in london um, that allows us to to carry on doing the band and within a year we dropped out signed on um and these were the glorious days you know we could sign on you could get housing benefit to cover all of your rent you had to go to the, the dole office every two weeks and go and they'd say have you looked for a job and I, I'd done photography, so I used to say, yeah, yeah. But my real specialism is photographing rare Islamic artifacts. And <laughs> I just can't find anything in that field. <laughs> and they just go, okay, fair enough, and tick. And, but I look back, you know, that was, um, I feel quite passionately about that, really, because I think people now in that position, you know, in their late teens that know that they want to do music or, or art um, and need that time to develop, and need that modicum of support, you know, it's just by all accounts impossible. Whereas for us, we could do that. We could we could drop out um, and put all our energy into really upping the ante. And uh, thanks to the government, really. Of course, this 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 is why increasingly the the, the music scene is dominated by people whose mums and dads have got lots and lots and lots of money. You know, I, I mean, there's there's a wonderful moment in the uh, the Oasis documentary Supersonic where you know they're talking at the end. They've just done Nebworth. The documentary takes you up to that point, and they they say exactly that. It's it's unlikely that you'll ever get you know a gang like that from their background ever achieving what they achieved because of exactly what you're talking about. They 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 were able to do it thanks to 
you know, the support of of, uh, of the government. It was uh, yeah. probably I won't happen that. again. I watched it again the other night, and I remember, I remember exactly that point. It jumped out at me. I couldn't agree more, you know. And, and it's, it's a sorry state of affairs, really, because, you know, it was precisely that that gave us Oasis and countless other bands, you know. You know, like so much culture today, um, you know, I mean, acting's another one. It's just utterly, utterly wealth-heavy. And, yeah. um, and I think that's a, a real negative. Um, and I can't, at the moment, see how that's going to, uh, you know, be rectified. But fortunately for us, at least, um, you know, it wasn't the case. And so we could do that. So you, you've you've got to that point. You, you you know you want to be in a band. You've rehearsed. You know you've 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 listened to Hole of the Moon loads and loads of times. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you've uh, actually, I should also add, we went. We we all of us actually took a a particularly um, acid heavy detour during the sort of um, sort of seventeen eighteen. Um, just before the kind of just before Manchester and, and rave culture really started to, to take off, and you know, just found a whole new raft of pseudo psych. Well, when I say pseudo, you're very fucking psychedelic, you know, from Hawkwind and Gong and Osric Tentacles, <laughs> but also the likes of sort of Floyd and Zeppelin and the you know Exile era Stones and that quite important canon of kind of quite grandiose songwriting but nonetheless you know amazingly crafted sculpted songs i would have paid good money harry to have been in a room with you and a melody maker journalist in 1997 and for you to have rattled off this list of bands i i would love to have seen that you could have paid an awful lot of money you probably wouldn't have heard it <laughs> I don't know, maybe you would. I mean, it's, ne it's something I've never been ashamed of, but, you know, obviously, you know, there, there's uh, <laughs> that kind of hippie, psychedelic kind of era. It's never really been cool, has it? But talking to a lot of other musicians and uh, people that I still know, and some of them quite successful, it's a funny little scene, that one, that seems to uh, have influenced a lot of people. I mean, Noel Gallagher's one of them. He, he was a real kind of head for that music. But... You know, if you look at know, a lot of Floyd or Zeppelin, for example, the, the, the sort of symphonic approach to songwriting, as opposed to the very catchy kind of three-minute pop craft, um, you know, I think it's really important. It was hugely important to how we went about writing songs and, and texture and that sense of scale, you know, and, um, and pace within a song. And I suppose, really, if I look back on Elka's songwriting, I mean, that was, when we when we would go about writing, you know, it wasn't like we sat down and said, right, let's listen to fucking Dark Side of the Moon and, and no. try and, you know, write that. But that, it becomes so sort of part of our our subconscious, really, that it, it was inevitably always going to be there. And then when we finally, and it took us a long time, really, to grasp the fundaments of, classic, you know, verse, bridge, chorus, middle eight, you know, that sort of tighter approach to song. But when that collided with the with the sort of looser, lusher, you know, stuff from that kind of you know, late 60s, early 70s sounds that we were hearing, I think it really clicked for us. And that's when, you know, I, I feel that we kind of discovered what we could sound like, really. And, of course, what, what, what you could sound like ultimately, you know, was thrust into the spotlight with, with rubbernecking, which, you know, to, to my mind is, you know, probably the great lost album of that particular era. You know, there were lots of albums that sold lots more copies and there were lots of bands who got lots more column inches. But the, the, the truth of the matter is that it's an incredible collection of songs with an incredibly um, individual um, and very unique sound to it. And I wonder if you can think back to, you know, you've finished recording, it's ready to go, you've got this little curate's egg, you're about to thrust it out into the spotlight. If you were aware of how good it was and if you had any expectations for it. <laughs> Just, it's really, really gratifying to hear you say that. I'm, I'm really grateful. Um, 
because um, yeah, we had massive hopes for it, and and I think all of us were um, we were really proud of that record. I mean, if I went back now, there's certainly changes and tweaks that are made, but but broadly speaking, certainly in terms of a collection of songs, uh, lyrically and musically, um, I'm really proud of the work that we did on that album. Um, you know, I mean, this is where the cure sort of returned. I still, to this day, think that Disintegration is one of the greatest albums ever recorded. It's just a phenomenal piece of work, the songwriting, but also the production, the way that it sounds. And I always remember sort of, you know, sitting there looking at that, that LP, you know, obviously it was, a, it was a record, in my house anyway, and reading this, this album was recorded to be played loud, so turn it up. That's right. And... And it really, really was. And the production on it was just extraordinary. And so, you know, when we landed our deal um, and we, you know, we started to shop around for producers, Island Records were very keen to introduce us to all sorts of, um, you know, flavours of the month, really. And we had all sorts of meetings with, and many names escaped me, really, but, you know, Names, names of the day, and they just done Echo Belly, or they just done whoever, you know. And we were just really clear by that point about who we wanted to work with, and the kind of record that we wanted to make in terms of that scale. And that's why we tracked Dave Allen down, who produced Disintegration, and uh, and we met with Dave, and we did a couple of sessions with him, and we were immediately there was no question in our minds that um, that's who we wanted to work with. I think he brought. A huge amount to that record. The songs were all there, actually. And when we went in, I should backtrack a little bit because when in in the kind of you know dropping out and and you know government sponsored development period, <laughs> um, you know we were we were fucking rigorous about it. We took it. We took ourselves and the, and what we were doing very seriously. And and I by that I, I I don't mean we took ourselves seriously in the sense that we thought that everything that we uttered was utterly profound and. You know, we, we were there to save the world. You know, we were never really a kind of a band with a message, if you like. And then politics was pretty low on our agenda. But but we were committed to the idea, I think, of making making songs that that just really, really set your ass on fire when you were listening to them, and playing songs live and and the whole kind of live experience for us was was, you know, equally, if not more, I think, important than, than how they sounded on the record. And and so meeting, we, we'd done a lot of our own demos. We built this very modest little studio in some warehouse in the arse end of near Woolwich, actually, um, just, just miles from anywhere. And we'd get up every morning, literally at 8 o'clock in the morning, every day for our Sunday. And we'd go there and we would rehearse and and record uh, all day, every day, and and fucking loved it, you know. Um, so we had the songs, and we were pretty clear what we wanted in the album, but it was a question, really, of finding a way of getting them down that, that at least tried to approach the sort of the scale that we, we were sort of beginning to achieve as a live band. I think I digress. What was the, what was the question? So, <laughs> no, so we were yeah. no, 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 no. Yeah, you've, you've answered it. It was about you know whether you know you were aware of you know how how good a collection of songs Robin Eckham was and and what your expectations were. But it's, it's obvious from that that your expectations were that that people would listen to it loud and that people would get that same feeling as if they were were seeing you live. It's funny. Another turning point on that record actually was when one of the last songs we wrote. Was was Boho Bird, mm. which didn't actually feature on the on the final release. Um, it came in sort of second pressing, I believe. That's right. We wrote that song, and that was. It's funny actually looking back because I suppose that was the one time that we got somewhat sucked into the scene because by that point we'd gone through kind of new mod, and when we were. You'll remember, you know, how quickly and how desperate the music press then were to kind of create scenes and, and lump people in. That's right. There's a lot of cynicism about that from, from some quarters. I, you know, I feel less cynical about it, really. I think 
there was a lot of good to that, really, because it continually revitalised and, you know, made the whole business of, of the world of bands excited, you know, that almost every 15 minutes there was a new scene and everyone was, you know, was getting hyped up about this. The, the difficulty was from the, from our side of the fence was sort of trying to retain a kind of identity and try to play that game but not get completely swamped by it. Um, and Bo Bird, I think, was... The nearest we skirted really towards what was rapidly becoming Britpop and that very sort of modern life is rubbish, suede, suede influenced um, Englishness really in in songwriting. Um, I mean, I loved it. I loved suede's first album, um, hearing that, and that was a game changer. And thinking, you know, the shit's just got serious, really. You know, the whole wave of Americana had been kind of going on for a while. I pretty much loathed all of it. I, yeah. you know, I have to admit, at the time, I didn't get Nirvana at no, all. No, I'm right um, there with you, Harry. Were you? Yeah. yeah I, 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 I really loved it, but I, I was just like, meh. No, I've, I've, got, I've got no interest in people who are that badly dressed. Well, this is the other <laughs> thing. I mean, I'm, I'm delighted to hear you say that, because the kind of, the idea, the idea of, you know, stepping off the stage and being just like the people that are looking at you as being a good thing was utterly, it was, it was anathema to me. Well, I, I, I was I was brought up in a home where, where mum and dad were both original mods, you know, 19, 1960s mods. My mum had actually lived in London for a bit and worked in Biba, um, you know, and so clothes and um, particularly black soul music, Stax, Atlantic, Motown, all that was, right. you know, very, very important. And I mean, you know, I was going to school in the kind of mod club before the, the, the new mod thing started. And I, I think, that, again, it's a, possibly a class thing. You know, when you don't have very much, it's really important that you take a bit of pride in your appearance. And when when I when that whole Nirvana grunge thing started, I just remember thinking, "This is shameful. This this is a celebration of the lowest possible aspirations." Yeah, yeah, I was right there with you. You know, and uh, a power to you. I'm sure we'd have got on famously if we'd have met because I was very much in that stride. Uh, you know, Bowie by this point was featuring very much in, in, in my consciousness. You know, it's I, I wanted and, and loved the kind of, you know, the pop stars that I admired to be, you know, very, very, very different to anyone I'd seen. And, and that was equally important to me about the whole machine, the whole purpose of, of a band. It was the idea of complete escape and complete beauty really and and you know making yourself into something extraordinary even if you didn't and most of us didn't certainly at that time you know have the the finances to do it and it was funny that new mod thing because we sort of we kind of got into that that very pursuited look um as far as it felt to us anyway entirely under our own steam you know there was no conscious decision to say oh look this is happening and people are dressing this way so let's do that um it was literally a a very concerted desire to to create a kind of look and to feel you know feel the money and so we'd go to charity shops and and buy the suits and go and get them tailored and you know and just suddenly this kind of look started to emerge and it was right and it and it fitted with us and then you know extraordinary sometimes how this sort of Synchronicity occurs. And literally, it felt like overnight this sort of menswear appeared, and you know, <laughs> then every other band, you know, was was dressing like that. Um, and that was kind of when we sort of changed the dial, much to the journalist Simon Price's dismay. Oh. Actually, you know, he rather turned his back on us for that for that tweet. Um, but yeah, so that kind of um, I was talking about Boho Bird, and that was a slight departure, and that was. If you like dipping a toe into that scene, and, and a lot of people love that that record. Um, it's not my favourite, to be perfectly honest with you, and I don't think it's the, the most typical of that collection of songs. Um, but it served us well because it got, you know, at the time quite a lot of press, and that was the kind of turning point, really. That um, that you know, suddenly the, the record labels we put Herbert out on our own label, and. Um, you know, suddenly we had sort of, you know, A&R men turning up at the gigs and yeah. it moved very quickly from there. 
So what, what about, I mean, we've kind of talked about it a little bit already, but, but what about the B word? What about the Britpop thing? Did you, other than Boho Bird, I mean, did you feel part of that scene? Were you aware that there was a scene? Were there other bands that you you, you did like or that you were, um, you know, friendly with? Or Yeah, I'm very much aware of a scene. Um, but I think, you know, often in these sort of cultural movements, when you're very much in the middle of something like that, you know, you don't have any hindsight. It's just happening before your very eyes. So I never, I personally never really felt that Elka were a Britpop band. No. I didn't really identify with that scene, only insofar as that we were British and suddenly there were a lot of, there was a lot of interesting music coming out of Britain and there was a lot of kind of attitude and identity. But, you know, really... I mean, if you look back at kind of a lot of the kind of the heavyweights, I mean, Oasis couldn't be more different to Pulp, really, and similarly to Blur. I mean, maybe there's more similarity to Pulp and Blur, but just to take those three yeah. as examples, you know, it's a pretty, pretty diverse range of music that was all conveniently lumped together as, as Britpop. I felt very other to that, but never sort of dismissively so. I didn't... It used to irritate me when I'd read certain bands, you know, that really made it, you know, went out of their way. Oh, so we don't belong to this. We're so other. I rather felt that it was sort of happening for us anyway, although we were sort of happening in that time and, and sometimes talked about in that context. It often, it always felt to me that, that Elka were viewed as quite singular, really, um, and not particularly absolutely slavishly as part of that. The tour, a Melody Maker tour, the Maker Shaker tour. Where I saw you again, yeah. Uh, did you see that tour? I yeah. did. So we had, who was on the bill there? It was Powder, Pusher Man yeah. and Strange Love. That's it, right. And, you know, again, a sort of a, a really kind of eclectic mix, really. Very uh, much so. But, you know, Powder, for example, you know, God love them. But, you know, there <laughs> to me was a band that were a very typical example of um, you know, doing everything in their power to sort of belong to a scene and making sure they were drinking in the right pubs in Camden and, you know, tweaking their outfits and their sound. Accordingly. Absolutely, yeah. Whereas Strange Love, I think, were, you know, shared a lot more DNA with Elko in, in, insofar as they very much did their thing and there wasn't really a great deal that was going to, <laughs> well, I think I think that the very idea that anybody could put Patrick into any particular box is uh... when we played with him at the time. He he was so deeply in the jaws of alcoholism. It was kind of um, you know it wasn't funny. No. Um, but you know, again, you know, when looking back to that time, you know, everybody was kind of hitting it so hard that you could kind of hide in plain sight, but. He, by all accounts, went through quite a, um, a personal odyssey, really. And, and you know, I, I haven't really studied his his music today too much to, to give you a fair opinion. But um, certainly what struck me was that he seems to have retained a kind of integrity and a, um, and a kind of honesty to what he does that I'm... I think it's pretty fucking admirable. Oh, I think so. I, 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 I think, you know, there, there are a few people who dance across the the, um, the glistening waters of, of pop who genuinely are, you know, artists, you know, people who have, a, a, as you say, an integrity, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got people like Morrissey at the, at the top end of it. Um, you know, he's probably the best example. Dylan, I guess, you know, is another one. Kevin yeah. Rowland. And then there are people, and I, I genuinely, I'm not trying to be sycophantic, Harry, I promise you, but there are people like you and Patrick Duff, you know, who really are trying to be honest and pure and write songs that, you know, have some kind of emotional depth or some kind of connection or will, will make people feel something, you know, and that, that is that is a very admirable quality. Well, you know, thank you for saying that. And, uh, I mean, I suppose the only response that I can give is, that, you know, I can, I, can, I can say absolutely that, and this really connects to us talking about the scene and the whole Britpop bubble, is that, it wasn't even kind of willful on my part. It was, there was simply, you know, writing songs was massively cathartic and important and deep, you know, uh, um, for me, you know, and it was, 
it, it was inconceivable really to sort of to, to do it in the reverse and sit down and say okay well we need to make something sound like x so this is what we need to do to to be successful it always perhaps with the slight exception of, of boho bub which as i said was a you know an experiment if you like <laughs> um but it always um it always just it just came from the process of doing it and yeah trying to trying to write something that um, that connected and that elicited a response in the listener and and meant something you know and if it didn't mean something to me or to us then um, it was quickly discarded I think we always had quite a good bullshit monitor really um, and we just knew when it was working and we knew when it was right which kind of when we get to the kind of end stages of Elka, um, mm. was probably the main reason why we weren't one of those bands that, uh, uh, you know, that, that, that carried on and carried on and looked for the next deal. And um, there was a chemistry and a kind of alchemy of the five of us playing together that certainly for me was, was you know, it was fraternal and utterly important to the, to what we were doing. And I always used to say, I remember saying in one interview that if if one of us went that was that was the end of the band and I didn't realize how prophetic that would prove to be but um yeah that was the case well so I wonder then if we can we can maybe get to that so you know rubbernecking comes out and you know there it is for the discerning people who you know made the effort to, to buy it and then my understanding is that there's a, a second album which of course we can now hear kind of in its demo form on online softly softly and mm-hmm. but a change in kind of ownership direction at the record label they put the blockers on elka taking the album with them to you know take it somewhere else just in case they may at some point in the future have wanted to release it and yeah. that pretty much spells the end for elka i mean is that accurate yeah more or less we rubbernecking came out um ireland were very very keen that we released you know, very quickly. There had been the kind of heat of our own self-releases, Boho, and um, they just desperately wanted to rush a single out, and they wanted us to do uh, the the track Supercharged. Uh-huh. And they really pushed hard for us to go and, and work with a guy called Dave Bascom, a producer, who, for my money, is an excellent producer. You know, nothing particularly against him, but the, the long and short of it was that the the mix that he delivered and the mix that Ireland really wanted to rush out, it just wasn't right for us. We weren't feeling it. And Marcus, the guitarist, and Marcus and I were really kind of the main songwriters um, for most of the work, actually. And he was, he just wasn't happy with it. And we were very stubborn and just said, you know, if we're not all behind it as a record, then we can't live with ourselves of just releasing it. I mean, you know, we were naive as well, I'm like, and I'm fully open to that now, you know, as, I, as I'm older and I understand how these things work more. But actually, I don't really regret that. There was a sort of, it was kind of part of the integrity of who we were as a, a band, and we hadn't spent as long as we had making that record, only to be sort of coerced into releasing what we thought was a bit of a, a bastardization of of one of the tracks so we said no we want we don't want to release that we're not going to release that and we took a while to um get that next release right which turned out to be look at you now but i think some of the some of the momentum had been lost i think critically i'm not guarded at all in my disdain for island records and how i think that they treated alki um it was a they treated us abysmally and I think there was a real sense of fuck you to some extent from our A&R man from the label in that you know well if you're not going to play ball by our terms then we're not going to you know pay back and they didn't really push that single very hard and, and, it, and it started to get a little bit wobbly even at that point however galloping to our rescue at the time uh, was was Mr. Morrissey who just out of the blue, we got a call and he said, um, Morrissey loves your album and he wants you to support him on his next world tour. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
at which we said, fucking, uh, well, uh, how can we possibly refuse? <laughs> of course. I mean, you know, there's you know, moments like that in life don't come along. It was, we were all massive Smiths fans. Um, I adore Morrissey, I still do. Um, well, most of the time. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, that was that was extraordinary. And, uh, and again, Ireland sort of ummed and ahed about it and we're you know, a bit costly in tour support and all the rest of it. And, uh, you know, but I particularly just refused really to take no for an answer and there was a lot of kind of, you know, doorstepping Ireland and, and saying, you know, just... This, this just has to happen. Um, and so, you know, we went off on that tour and it was it was a hugely important period of our relatively brief career in the spotlight because for the first time, really, I mean, by that point, we probably got to a point where, well, we headlined the garage, I think, for two nights and that was about, I think it was a 2,000 capacity the garage up in Highbury and Islington do you remember that yeah it's yep. still there it is still there that's right so you know we we certainly started to build a, a half decent fan base and um and they were incredible gigs and you know that elusive tipping point was beginning to sort of reveal itself um but then he you know invites us to that to to support him as the only band actually on the, that's right much the whole tour um, so we were playing to 30,000 people, you know, um, on many nights. We played Central Park. We played the LA Greek. Um, we played some extraordinary venues. And, you know, of course, the vast majority were there to see um, to see Morrissey. And, and, you know, hardly anyone at the start of the tour knew who the fuck we were. But it was, it was fascinating to, as it unfolded, to sort of, literally to see this Elka fan base begin to, to swell. And, you know, by the literally coast to coast, we started on the East Coast. And whatever it was, five or six weeks later, we ended up in Los Angeles playing the, playing the Greek. And um, there was a sense, you know, of all of us where we just said, fucking hell, you know, this is, something's happened here. You know, this has been important for us because there was that visible contingent that had got there early and as well as the the, the Morrissey banners, there was a really good smattering of, of Elka banners. <laughs> so that was extraordinary in that, you know, we playing those kind of crowds, realising that we could do that and that we could, you know, I mean, we were very well aware setting off on that tour that it was not, you know, historically the easiest gig supporting Morrissey. No, no. Um, you know, the audiences tended to be pretty dismissive of, you know, of anybody that just sort of wasted their time before he came on stage. Um, and, you know, it, it would be an exaggeration to say that we, everybody was swooning to our, to our, <laughs> we, we seemed to, and, and he told us, told me on more than one occasion, fuck that trend um, to, to a great extent and, you know, kind of win a lot of that audience over. And as well as that and as well as playing those kind of bigger audiences, which really felt right in terms of the sort of scale of what we were trying to do in the sound, we began to write the second album. So when we finally came back, we did America with him, we did a lot of Europe and Scandinavia. And uh, we came back and we had... I would say a good chunk of the second album written or, or ready to demo. And we had a two album firm deal with Island Records. And that had been a massive swayer for us really in terms of who we signed. Cause we, we, you know, at the time of the deal, we had three or four offers, from different labels. And, um, this, this two firm, this elusive two firm, as it was known, was, was the kicker for us. Yeah. Um, uh, they, guaranteed to record and to release two albums um, and then and then you know the option could be tabled again so we did go straight back into the studio and we started to record what was to become softly softly and you know I was I was really proud of that album I'm, I have to say to be perfectly honest with you I'm prouder of that album in terms of the songs um, but I think I am a rubberneck I mean it's sort of favorite child isn't it but I, I was aware of how much we had progressed in the direction that I believed that we could 
and were going in. And uh, I, it was an important album to me and what at the time I thought would be, you know, just our second album, you know, en route to <laughs> yeah. fully flowering by about the fourth. But that's when the kind of real horror show started to kick in and and uh, we'd agreed to release uh, the single Pleasure uh, as the first single from that album. And um, it, it, it really started to do well. It was getting a lot of attention from the radio stations, B-listed. Uh, oh, Christ, I sound like Lisa from Steps. Was that <laughs> We were B-listed at Capital. <laughs> we were at Radio One. <laughs> Which was, um, you know, that that was the first time really that um, that the sort of national radio sort of picked up on a tune of ours, and it was all it was all looking really, really good. And um, I was in a studio with Marcus. We were just rehearsing to do a, a short promo tour, just the two of us, around regional stations to promote the album and the single. You know, just acoustic yeah. version of it. And um, I got to the studio in Holloway. And he hadn't turned up. And, uh, you know, we're still in the just before the arrival of mobile phones. So I found a payphone in a pub and phoned him up. I said, where the fuck are you? You know, blah, 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 you know, ranting, as was my particular bent when it came to any professional indiscretion. And he said, um, he said you better come home. Um, we've been dropped. There was a lot of politics at play and all the rest of it, but... Somehow, which to be honest with you, Paul, I've never truly got to the bottom of. I think there was certainly some foul play from our management to an extent, with some other interests involved. Um, but really, I, I think the main crux of it was that Ireland were able to hide behind the sound to Universal uh, and kind of say, you know, it's not me, Gov. You know, the bean counters from, from the, the Big Daddy label have come in and, uh, you know, you're a casualty and, and so are a lot of others. And um, so that was it, really, right at the point where I, where it felt that we absolutely, you know, got ourselves into the best shape ever as a live band. We'd have this new clutch of songs which we were all really, really enthused by. Um, and it seemed that we had the kind of right press attention for it all to go. And um, and, and then it sort of came to an abrupt halt. I mean, it's, this maybe sounds like a very silly question, but I'm, I'm trying to think, well, wh- what what do you do then? You know, this, this thing that you've devoted all of this time to, all of this energy, thousands of air miles, thousands of miles on the road, you know, craft and care and love and attention, and now all of a sudden it's... Over with a capital mm. O. Wh- mm. What what do you do? Well, you fall apart to begin with, for sure, and uh, and there was there was a bit of that all around. Really, Darren decided I have to be a little bit careful here because I don't want to be you know break up too much. Of course, too much shit. But um, he was seduced into the idea that um, he could be a solo artist. And announced to us shortly after Ireland, the Ireland dropped us, and our immediate response was, fuck them, we, we'll get the album back somehow, and we'll sign another deal. And we started immediately talking to a couple of other labels and management. And uh, then Darren sort of turned around and said, actually, I think I want to do something on my own. And that just, it just felt like a sort of killer blow, really, because, and, it, and you know, I said to you earlier that, that quote I once gave, which is, if one of us left, yeah. then it wouldn't be the band anymore. It just sort of rang in my head, and I just, I just felt at that point that, you know, that we would be limping along, literally, without one limb. Um, and we talked a lot about it, and there was a lot of kind of discussion, and there was a lot of resistance but I have to say that I take kind of, it took me a long time to be able to say this, but I have to take responsibility really for probably pulling the trigger on that. And I just thought, I don't, I don't see a way that we can be the band that I believe that we are if, if he or any one of us left. And I mean, I'm not exaggerating. I, it, it, it's taken a lot of growth and a lot of the passing of time to sort of revisit that that period and, and actually 
view it in a somewhat different way because I think there was a real appetite from all of us and certainly from the rest of the band um, to continue and you know who knows how it would have panned out it could have been um, a very familiar story of kind of you know limping sadly towards um, you know decreasing circles but of course it could have also been quite different but at that time there'd been a lot of that kind of shit and, and those two major events I just felt completely ruined by it and really should have probably just taken a bit of time out and regroup um, but um, I, I didn't and I moved into something else entirely different very quickly and uh, and sort of buried it for quite a while actually. Well I, I wonder then you know if you, we've talked about again. We've talked about this a couple of times already about the fact that there is clearly uh, an interest, not only more generally in that period in British popular culture. And I don't know if it's got to do with the, you know, we're coming up to the well. It is now the anniversary of nineteen ninety eight. Is the kind of you know twentieth anniversary of kind of peak Brit pop. Blah blah blah. Uh-huh. But 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 more specifically, Harry, and you you know the, the you know you've been very humble about things, but the. There is clearly, a, a, you know, a bit of a a bit of an appetite for Elka specifically. That you know, pe- people, you know, there is a little bit of chatter here and there online. You know, you'll know the Marcus, the guitarist, has sort of started to pull some stuff together, and basically the idea came about that you know all of us kind of moved into different parts of you know life and new chapters and all the rest of it, um, but we all stayed. You know, the one blessing I think really from that kind of horrible fallout and demise was that we survived our relationships somehow managed to survive uh, and that we didn't sort of all sort of start hating each other and not talking for years um, we all remained very close and it was it was almost as if we'd all experienced something of a kind of catastrophe together and and, and we sort of it, it perversely bound us in some ways you know a while ago about a year ago Marcus suggested pulling some kind of definitive archive together yeah. online. Um, and it felt like a good idea because, you know, enough of us, you know, you tell people you're in a band and what band, oh, and they can listen to it. Oh, fucking hell, actually, you were quite good, all of that kind <laughs> That's of thing. That's right. <laughs> and um, so we thought, it, you know, good, let's, let's just have a kind of, you know, um, a tombstone, if you like. And uh, But it does, it does definitely seem to have sort of... Um, kind of, you know, lit a couple of matches here and there. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm a bit sanguine about it, really. I, put it this way, the story I've just told you and, and that ending point, it really was, I, I can only speak for myself in this context, but it really was, you know, just a, a very, very difficult uh, uh, time and a, a very difficult event. And the only way I could get through it, really, past it, was by essentially putting it into a box and labelling that my past and creating a, a, a new future. And I moved into te- television, and, and, and that's what I currently still do. I did some writing for a while, and um, but I've worked certainly for the last sort of 15 years, really, um, developing and or making television at one stripe or the other. Um, and I never sang again. I never got involved with another band again. Um, and people would say to me, what do you mean you never sing? Like, you know, what, don't you, yeah. don't you fancy? And I was, it was just perfectly obvious to me that, no, it was, you know, I did that in that context with those people. It was a thing. It was, it wasn't just singing. You know, it wasn't just playing guitar because I love playing guitar. It was making music with Elka. That was what I did. And that's what I loved doing. And that's what was important. Um, and so, really, to do anything else for me was inconceivable, and it would somehow cheapen really what Elka meant to me. But it's literally only, I would say, in the last year or two that somehow a bit of a fire has returned, and we've started talking to each other. And there's a sort of desire, if for no other reason, than to perhaps find a way of of getting back together to play, literally, perhaps just for ourselves. Um, but to hear those songs again, and crucially to play them again, and so talking to yourself, and, and there's you know there's been 
a clutch of other interviews that have just materialised. And somebody from New York is quite eager to release the the second album, but, but you know, not as demos as it was intended. Yeah. Or you know, or to remix it. Um. So. <laughs> I genuinely don't really know uh, what to say at this point, but I think all of us are very, very mindful not to be seduced by uh, a beautiful dream um, and are quite sort of realistic about the realities of what that might involve and the kind of hubris, really, of reforming in any kind of overblown way and, and, you know, trying to put a tour together. Because I, I just would have no idea, really, what kind of interest there would be uh, and whether we struggle to, to fill the Dublin Castle or whether there could be, you know, uh, a string of carefully thought about dates um, that would enable us to sort of, you know, play a few shows to people that cared about it. So that's really where we're at, I think, is very carefully thinking about whether that could be a possibility. I genuinely can't thank you enough for, for finding a bit of time. I, I, I know exactly how difficult it is when you've, you've got a family uh, to find any time for anything for yourself. So I'm, I'm really, really grateful. Watch this space because um, I'd love to see if um, there might be, in some way, shape or form, um, a, a way that we can uh, play those songs again in some context. So once again, massive thanks to Harold for finding the time to chat with me today and massive thanks to you for listening and also hopefully reading the blog which can be found at themildmanneredarmy.com and I'm on Twitter at mildmanneredmax.